big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Callie, Alyssa and Francis. Welcome to the team. Thanks to our amazing patrons, we finally got new mics. We are so excited and we couldn't have done it without our patrons. If you want to join our Patreon team, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. Pod and Prejudice is transcribed by SpeechDocs. SpeechDocs is a podcast transcription service that is run by humans and is affordable, accurate, and has a really fast turnaround time. If you have a podcast, you should be offering transcripts, and we highly recommend SpeechDocs. Check them out at speechdocs.com. And now enjoy this final book episode covering chapters 49 and 50 of Sense and Sensibility. Wow, it's our last episode on Sense and Sensibility, the novel. Yes, the novel is complete. Graham, the party music. Molly, how are you feeling? I have no idea how to process my feelings, <laughs> Becca. This has been a wild ride. This book has been full of ups and downs, twists and turns. Well, we're going to talk about some of those ups and downs, twists and turns, but first... Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here to talk about the final two chapters of Sense and Sensibility. Listeners, if this is your first time with us, weird choice, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) I, Molly, have never read any Jane Austen before doing this podcast. I, Becca, have read a lot of Jane Austen before doing this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice for the first time, you can go listen to season one of this podcast, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about chapters 49 and 50 of Sense and Sensibility or volume three chapters 13 and 14. If your book is divided up like that. Yes. And oh boy, do we fast forward through a lot of time in these last few chapters. Yeah. Jane Austen's a really big fan of the where are they now, isn't she? She loves an epilogue. She does love an (laughs) epilogue. Yeah. And in this book in particular, she really crams a lot into that epilogue. Like in the last book, everyone was sort of married off by the end and she was like, And they were either happy or unhappy. And in this one, it's like, by the way, two of the main characters are going to pair off like three years after the fact. So yes, (laughs) yeah, we should probably just get into it. Oh, absolutely. There's so much to talk about. And I love the way this book ends. So I am very (laughs) excited to convince you to do so, too. It's funny because I feel like, yes, we have only read one Jane Austen before this, but I feel like this is our first book where we've like had very differing opinions about things. Yes. And I think 
that a lot of my opinions will make a little bit more sense when we watch the movies. Sure. And I think that a lot of people feel that way because I did. I went to a, a friend's going away thing last night and I was talking about sense and sensibility with people, you know, as you do at a party. And other people said similar things about having seen the movie first and feeling attached to certain plot lines. I should also be clear. There's something very specific I like about the way this ends. There's a couple things I like a lot about the end. And one of the big ones is the Lucy Steele plotline. I think it's hilarious and fantastic. And I'll explain why as we go through. It's totally funny. Okay, yes, let's get into it. So we'll just start right off the bat. Chapter 49 or volume three, chapter 13. The Dashwoods might not understand why Eddie is now free, but they know that he is. And they assume that since he's already had one imprudent engagement behind his mother's back that lasted for four years, he probably won't have any problem having another imprudent engagement behind his mother's back, i.e. he's probably going to propose to Eleanor. Classic Eddie with his (laughs) imprudent engagement. Yes, he is. So he had, in fact, come to Barton exclusively to propose. And the narrator doesn't explain how exactly his uh, engagement with Eleanor went down, only that he walked around outside for a little bit, got up the courage, and by four o'clock they were engaged. She does mention that he he did knock out that asking her mother thing first. Yes, he had her consent. They all sat down to dinner. It was lovely. Yes, so Graham will take the engagement sound effect. <laughs> she got a ring. She did. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. And he did, finally. At last, yeah. Uh, so he's like exceptionally happy because not only is his love reciprocated and his marriage proposal accepted, but also he has been freed from an engagement that has so long formed his abject misery because he's been engaged to someone he doesn't love and, quote, elevated at once to that security with another, which he must have thought of almost with despair as soon as he had learned to consider it with desire. This part really attached me to this man. This is a chapter where you really get a sense of who Edward is as a person. Like we learned at the very beginning what he was like humble, sweet, shy, like human disaster, little boy, anxious, and super like into being a try hard worker. But this chapter, she does a little bit more showing and a little less telling. Yes, she's she tells us how as soon as he realized he was in love with Eleanor, it just brought him so much pain because he knew he could never be with her because he's been with Lucy Steele this whole time. And sweet, sweet boy tried to do right, did bad didn't do be great. He's compost. He's compost. Ultimately, it helps the planet and we like it, but it smells weird. Yes. Oh, Eddie smells weird. <laughs> I do have to say that in hearing all of these descriptions of Eddie as kind of like a little bit helpless um, in his whole situation, I do have to say I do think that Hugh Grant is going to be phenomenal as Eddie, which I couldn't see at first because I thought of Hugh Grant as being kind of like just like minorly douchey. Hugh Grant is um, supposedly kind of douchey. But Hugh Grant in rom-coms is famously floppy and disastered. Yes, and he has this facial expression that he does where like he his eyebrows scrunch up a little and his eyes look a little sad and he looks a little bit like a wounded puppy. Absolutely. Like I think of that um, scene in Love Actually, not Love Actually, in um, Notting Hill where he's offering Julia Roberts the apricots in yes. Honey. Uh-huh. Um, and he's like, oh, would you like something to eat? Something to uh, nibble? 
Yes, exactly. It's that. It's that. It's and it's when in love actually when he like realizes that he's been in love with what's her face the whole time and he 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 goes like, "Oh dear." Is it Natalie? Natalie, yeah. And he's like he's like, "Oh. Oh, bollocks or whatever. I don't know what the fuck he says, but like it's so good and I think that he's going to be great." So, really excited for tonight when we watch the movie. <laughs> so, he tells Eleanor everything about Lucy with, quote, the philosophic dignity of 24. He's able to look on it with retrospect now. At almost 27 years old, with no money and no prospects, I do not think that I had a lot of philosophic dignity at age 24, but I get it. I was a law student at 24, so my philosophic dignity was starting to form, but I still don't think I have any philosophic dignity. Like, I've, I'm pretty sure that's now reserved for, like, turning 40. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be ready to make these kind of like retrospective claims to my life when I am 45. I, I was going to say, I said 40, but then I'm like, when I turn 40, I'm going to be like, that's for 60. <laughs> yeah. So he explains that when he left his homeschooling with Mr. Pratt, he believed himself genuinely in love with Lucy, but he was 19 and he was young and he was foolish. And he blames the fact that he wasn't allowed to choose a profession. We've talked about this many times. He 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 wanted to do some, one thing. His mom wanted to do another thing. But instead, he was just forced to sit idle, which I still don't really fully understand why he couldn't just do something. But in any event, like he didn't have a job. So he was stuck with his feelings, doing nothing but just going and visiting Lucy Steele. So of course, he was going to think like, oh, this is it for me. Like, I found the one. And he ends up with her in that way. And also at that point, he hadn't really spent much time with women. So he thought she was like the gold standard. Yeah. And we have to remember, and as these two chapters really articulate, Lucy Steele is a master at charming people. Yes. Especially foolish people. And so it, it makes a lot of sense. I will say it is a curse of the upper classes in this era that there wasn't much work that was worth doing, quote unquote, in terms of like social class. Mm -hmm. And basically everything Edward wanted to do was considered too low class for him. Mm. And everything that his parent mother wanted him to do, he didn't want to do. Right. And so his family was more content to just be like, do nothing than to let him do what he actually wanted to do. So he feels useless to society and doesn't like it. Yes. Which, fair. He's a good bean. He is a bean. So that night, Mrs. Bennett is just too happy. She can't sleep. She doesn't want to smother them with her love, but she also wants to smother them with her love. There's a line Jane Austen writes where it's like, Mrs. Dashwood went to sleep and she could not be more in love with Edward. She could not be more happy for Eleanor. Yeah, she's like, she's like, she wanted to give them space, but she also wanted to watch them together the whole night. Yes. Marianne is also very happy, but she is... Uh, shedding many a tear because she's feeling her regret. It's like a comma. She's happy and sad. It's like when you watch Ted Lasso. It's like you're happy and sad at the same time. That's an Olivia Rodrigo song, right? I'm sure. I was thinking more just like watching Ted Lasso with you where we both like are in our feelings and then you you cry. Yeah, I'm usually crying by the end of Ted Lasso mostly because it's so pure. Yeah. <laughs> so Eleanor, meanwhile, Eleanor, how can we describe Eleanor's feelings? Eleanor is, quote, oppressed overcome by her own felicity. Has she ever been this happy? No, here's the thing. Once she could stop holding it in, you kind of see the progression of Eleanor lose control of her own feelings. And now that like she's getting everything she wanted and all the drama she went through is just like erased. 
Like she can't hold back anymore. She needs to be in her feelings right now. Girl is in it. We love this. Yes, we do love this for Eleanor. I'm so happy for her. Eddie is invited to stay with them for a week and he and Eleanor just talk the whole time. It says, quote, for though a very few hours spent in the hard labor of incessant talking will dispatch more subjects than can really be in common between any two rational creatures, yet with lovers, it is different. We could just talk forever and ever. That's good stuff. Also, this is before like, the lovemaking before le marriage was appropriate. Right. So these two are dealing with all their sexual tension by just having conversations until they get married. Yes, which later on Eleanor is like, okay, it's time to get married. Like, we're not waiting for the house to be finished. <laughs> she just really wants to bang. She does. Like, yes, Eleanor. Good for her. Yes. Oh, this, this whole set of chapters just could be called good for Eleanor. Yeah, honestly. So Eleanor wants to know all about how the whole Lucy and Robert thing came to be, especially because she literally heard Robert saying that Lucy wasn't pretty, uh, wasn't good for society. He didn't like her. Also, she was engaged to his brother and that engagement is what caused his brother to be disowned. So Eleanor is like, what's happening here? I will say on a quick side note, this just goes to show that that misogynist guy who's talking about how ugly a girl is nine times out of ten. He still would bang. Still would bang. Still would bang. So Edward thinks that Lucy just flattered his brother out the wazoo. And Robert is very susceptible to flattery because he is very vain. And Eleanor tells him then what Robert said about how he thought he could have stopped the engagement had he known sooner, which is something we drew attention to. But I didn't realize what he meant by that, like that he was going to go try to stop it or that maybe he had at that point already tried to stop it. I don't know. But like... He had said that, you know, if I had known half an hour earlier, I could have stopped this whole thing. And then Eleanor was like, "Okay." Edward says, yeah, that's very like him. He probably initially did try to convince her not to marry me, but who knows? And he says he doesn't know how long it had actually been carrying on between them. This is where in my notes, I was like, wait, did she cheat on him? Yes. I mean, granted, it's the Austin times. So it's not clear how much these upper class men are actually, you know, kissing this girl if you know what I mean right Um, right but they might be again we've learned from Willoughby that you know that happens it does Um, but not with Mr. Edward Ferrers I doubt no but maybe with Mr. Robert Ferrers yes but in terms of courting very clearly yes cheating yes I want to say uh in case it's very noticeable that someone is leaf blowing outside so just yeah sorry about this listeners we live in a very populous city and sometimes noises happen and we live in the back of a building but it doesn't mean we don't ever get any noise yeah so just in case it's here but if it's not I'll cut this but we'll see anyway wanted to point it out So basically, Lucy had been writing to Edward as if everything was normal. He was at Oxford at this point. He hasn't even been to Delaford yet. And then all at once, she sends him a letter saying, you know, I think you stopped loving me a long time ago, so you won't mind that I've gotten married to your brother, essentially. She says she hopes that they will still be good friends. Her letter is just pretty slimy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just Lucy Steele trying to justify to the world what happened in that girl mean way that only Lucy Steele can do. So it's like got this veneer of, oh, sorry, whoopsie, my bad. Yeah, I think that Lucy, honestly, like we've been commenting a lot throughout the book about how she is very like petty and girl mean, but 
I think it's more than that. I think that she is a political mastermind. Oh, absolutely. I want to read some of her letter. Yes, do it. Dear sir, being very sure I have long... I'm sorry, she has a Cockney accent, but I'm not going to do it. Being very sure I have long lost your affections, I have thought myself at liberty to bestow my own upon another and have no doubt of being as happy with him as I once used to think I might be with you. But I scorned to accept a hand while the heart was another's, basically being like... I knew you were in love this whole time. You didn't fool me. Sincerely wish you happy in your choice, and it shall not be my fault if we are not always good friends, as our near relationship now makes proper. I can safely say I owe you no ill will. She's, like, turning it on him, being like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, you basically just see her say, oh, well, back back through most of this book, she has been saying, oh, I'm so glad Edward sees you like his sister and you know him. That's so nice. I'm getting engaged. He's so in love with me, all this stuff. And now she's taking that same relationship. She's been very cognizant of the entire time and being like, listen, you shouldn't hide from the fact you're you're in love with Eleanor Dashwood. So I've made other arrangements. I'm setting you free. Don't you worry, which is accurate, but not why she's doing it. No, she's doing it for money. Oh, absolutely. So the letter happens. Her postscript, though, this had me cackling in my seat. (laughs) Quote, I have burnt all your letters and will return your picture the first opportunity. Please destroy my scrawls. But the ring with my hair, you are very welcome to keep. In my, notes, in my notes, I wrote, but you didn't have to cut me off. Great stuff, but we're not paying for the song. No. I mean, the the lock of hair makes yet another appearance for you. It's been a minute. It has, but they didn't forget. Oh, no, no, no. Jane Austen tied up that loose end, that that uh, split end, if you will. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Really good. Becca has this shit-eating grin on right now. <laughs> wow, dad jokes. Okay. Oh, boy. So Edward says that he's honestly embarrassed by how badly written and, like, messy this letter is because she has no ability to write a good letter, but the contents of the letter made up for it for him because it set him free. Eleanor comments that his mother ended up getting exactly what she was trying to avoid. She said, well, she's got her punishment now because Robert married the very girl that she tried to disown you for. And Edward sadly says that even though Mrs. Ferrers was more hurt by Robert marrying Lucy, she will probably forgive him faster because he's her favorite, which is sad. Yes, it's very sad and also very emblematic of Edward Ferrers' whole experience of his family. Yes, absolutely. So Edward hasn't been home yet because... As soon as he got the letter, he was like, I'm going to Barton. I want to ask this woman to marry me. Thirsty. (laughs) Thirsty. He loves Eleanor so fucking much. A man with a plan. It says that he, even though he had like felt jealousy about Colonel Brandon and he was like nervous that maybe they would hate him. He didn't really think that they would. Like he had it in the back of his mind that maybe he was still okay with the Dashwoods, but he had to go there and act like very humble and be like, I know that you probably hate me. And I think that's probably why he arrived and didn't know what to do with himself. Edward explains that he had started to notice that he and Lucy were very different, that she had lacked a certain um, liberality in her opinions, I think is what it said. And he thought it was just because she was uneducated. But when his mother had disowned him, he had given Lucy this option of continuing the engagement. And he thought because she said she wanted to continue the engagement that it meant she really did love him. Later on, of course, he would learn that she's just a political mastermind. Yeah, and and a thirsty bitch. At this point, 
Eleanor says that she thinks Lucy probably assumed his mother might ultimately relent and give him his inheritance back and it would be better for her to be married at all than to be single. It's actually just the sound. So listeners, if this makes it into the episode, which it seems inevitable at this point, it will. Um, that is my fridge. We have a ghost, but uh, think of it as the clip-clopping of Edward's horse towards Barton to ask Eleanor for her hand in marriage after he's freed from his engagement with Lucy Steele. Yeah. That is the sound you're hearing. Exactly. Yeah, it's just the sound effect of Edward Ferrer's wanting to satisfy his uh, desires, both sexual and romantic, with the, the very hottie with a body, Eleanor Dashwood herself. See? When his mother disowned him, he had given Lucy the option of continuing the engagement or not, and he thought that because she wanted to continue it, that she really did love him, and he doesn't understand, in retrospect, her motives for staying with him. Eleanor thinks that Lucy probably thought his mother was going to eventually relent and give him his inheritance back, and also it was better for Lucy to be married to him than to be married to no one at all for her status. Absolutely. And Edward Poor is still better than no man. Exactly. And, Steel. and he's hot. Oh, yeah. Edward's hot. Actually, I mean, he's supposed to be cute. That to me is hot. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So Eleanor at this point scolds Edward for spending so much time with them at Norland because it gave them all false hope because he knew that he was engaged. And he says, and this part really did, this is where I kind of turned and became an Edward stan because uh, he thought that his heart was safe because he was like, I'm engaged. I can be friends with these people and not risk falling in love because I'm attached to someone else. And he never would have expected Eleanor to love him. So he just thought they were all just hanging out genuinely as friends. And it wasn't until he started comparing his feelings for Eleanor with his feelings for Lucy that he realized he was in love with Eleanor. But he continued coming because he really thought that he was only hurting himself. He didn't think that he could possibly be hurting Eleanor. And he's so in love. He's just like, oh, he can't help himself. He really can't. And he's he's a low self-esteem boy. He doesn't yeah. he doesn't think that he's worthy of her love, which he's not. No one is worthy of Eleanor. No. He is excited to hear that Brandon is coming to the cottage. He feels at this point guilty for how he kind of treated Brandon when Brandon offered him the living. Why did he resent Brandon for that? Oh, it's because he thought Eleanor and Brandon were a thing. And he was like, oh, this is a charity case. Like, it's basically one of those things where like, has someone you liked ever dated another person? And then that per other person turns out to be like perfect in every way and like even helps you out. No. So the show New Girl actually kind of subverts the trope a little. Uh-huh, uh-huh. With uh, Jess and uh, what's her name? Reagan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. So spoilers for New Girl, a show that came out a decade ago. Listen, almost. we're avoiding spoilers for books that came out 200 years ago, so it's yeah. fair. So when Reagan is dating Nick... They resist the urge to make Jess super jealous. But you could see a situation where Reagan was like super nice to Jess and like say Jess trips over something and falls and Jess comes over. Oh, you know what this is like? This is actually like Sam, Dr. Sam, 
stitching up Nick if he falls and hurts himself when Nick is in love with Jess. Right, when they're at the the thing, the haunted house. It's yes. also like, actually, New Girl does this a lot because they all live together. They kind of have to deal with this. Yep. But with um, when Janice from New from Mean Girls plays Nick's girlfriend, who I'm forgetting her name. Mama Lizzie Kaplan. Yes. Uh, she plays Nick's girlfriend at one point and Jess is super jealous of her and they like don't get along at all. And then uh, she comes over one night and Jess uh, gives her a cupcake and she's like, I don't trust you. You don't like desserts. And then they become friends and they like are crying together. And it's like this. Absolutely. All this to say that like it really sucks when you are already like resentful of a person mm-hmm. and um, they end up doing something shitty, like helping you out when you're down. <laughs> yeah. So shitty. But yes, I get it. I get yeah. it. And so he's like now he's like, OK. I'm going to go be friends with Brandon. Yes. So he hasn't yet been to Delaford. So Eleanor like tells him all about the parish. And in this sentence, they use the word glebe, which means land. So she's just describing the grounds to him, which she's heard about in great detail from her good friend, Colonel Brandon. Mm -hmm. Her good friend. So Eleanor and Edward. Now that you're standing Edward again. (laughs) I know it's complicated. I have complicated feelings, which I'm sure we will talk about in the study question. Of course. Eleanor and Edward have one thing left to settle between them, which is that they need something to live on. They aren't so in love that they think 350 pounds a year is going to be enough for them. Unlike what Marianne was thinking at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Edward still hopes that his mom is going to forgive him, but Eleanor doesn't think that she will. And she brings back that uh, she knows that she was the lesser of two evils (laughs) between her and Lucy. Then Colonel Brandon arrives. And since the cottage is now too crowded, he walks every night back to the park to stay with the Middletons and then comes back in the morning by breakfast time. Are the Middletons there right now? Are they still in London? Um, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to. I guess it doesn't really matter because they're not coming to I'd hang assume out. they're there if uh, Brandon's sleeping over. Or they gave him keys. They that's might have given him keys. So he had been at Delaford alone for three weeks before this. And it said that he, that he had little to do but calculate the disproportion between 36 and 17. This reminds me of that scene in Parks and Rec where Andy's like, is 21 too young to date? Oh, I watched that one. Yeah, yeah. you. I understood that reference. I understood that reference. <gasps> uh, yeah, and here's the thing. Like, mm, ah, it's mm, It's, I don't ship it yet. So uh, and we're running out of time. It's okay. It's very sweet. I really am. I, I like him. And you like her. And I like her. Mrs. Dashwood tells Colonel Brandon all the tea. And he is doubly happy about what he did for Eddie since now it benefits Eleanor. And in my notes at this point, I also wrote, fine. I love their friendship, which I do. That's what I'm saying. Is that like, if you focus too much on whether or not they like are going to bang, you miss out on like this really, really like solid bond the two of them have. And it is so pure. And I really do support them as best friends. It doesn't mean that I (laughs) ship him with Marianne. And I will talk more about that later on. But I just, and I I, I just, yeah, I think that I would have been happy if he didn't end up with anyone and just stayed just friends with the Dashwoods at large. All right, we'll get there. We'll get there. there. So Brandon and Edward become friends um, mostly because they are in love with two sisters, but also because they've got a lot in common in their personalities, which is something that we've talked about a lot because we've talked about the way the two sisters love and like the kinds of things that they look for in a man and they both are sensible. I don't know. Have we talked about it? I don't think we have talked about it, but it's not inaccurate. Um, They're both pragmatic men who value um, the Dashwood girls and are smart and capable. 
Um, I think their distinction really comes down to the fact that Colonel Brandon has this like deep under the carriage pining that is like he's got his passions, I would say, in a way that Edward's not as like deep, dark, poetic, like angst. I think Edward might be underneath it all. Edward's he's a fumbler. God yeah, bless. but I, I think he doesn't know how to put it. But I think that he's got it in him. He's got the little, like, the, he's like all sunshine and marshmallows inside. <laughs> and Ed, marshmallows. And Brandon's like, ah, oh, yes, my dead lover. Oh, poor Brandon. Speaking of poor Brandon, they start getting their correspondence from London. Mrs. Jennings writes them. And she gives everyone a good laugh because she's venting about how angry she is with Lucy. And she's like, poor Edward must be so heartbroken by this. Did you notice she called her a hussy? Yes, she did. She called her a hussy. (laughs) So good. She tells them that Lucy stole all of Anne's money when she left and left Anne all by herself with nowhere to go and like no way to get anywhere. Absolutely brutal on the part of Lucy Steele. Like, how dare she? That's her sister. Oh, yeah. She's probably still pissed off. Oh, that she revealed everything. Well, here's the question. Would Lucy have married Edward if he hadn't been disowned? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing. Anne sent Lucy scrambling for a plan B. That's true. And so she's like, you know what? You get nothing. (laughs) Yeah, so Anne shows up at Mrs. Jennings' doorstep like, I'm too afraid to go anywhere Mrs. Ferris is going to get me. And Mrs. Jennings gives her some money and tells her to go find the Burgesses, who I guess live near the doctor, and she wants her to go fall in love with the doctor again. So that's good for Anne, I guess. She talks about how Edward must be so sad again. And then she says Marianne must try to comfort him. Why Marianne? Because she still thinks Eleanor and Brandon are an item. So she's trying to now match up. (laughs) I thought that might be what it was saying. But I was like, it's too late. Absolutely absurd. Oh, God. I love Mrs. Jennings for how completely oblivious she is to actual like actual connection and how badly she wants to set up everyone. I know she is just a matchmaker. She's a yenta. She's a yenta, but like a really bad one because she always is like trying to connect the wrong people. Well, to be fair, did yenta do so great? I actually haven't seen yenta. No, yenta. Yenta in yenta, not yentl. Yenta in Fiddler. <gasps> no! This is a recurring theme. Honestly, it's probably like enough to like cancel out my bat mitzvah, but I can't believe I just made a fiddler on the roof reference, forgetting that Becca hasn't seen it. Yenta tries to match up someone with Laser Wolf, who is an old man and means well, but damn. Anyway, where were we? They also get a letter from their brother who writes to say how Mrs. Ferrers and Fanny are suffering and how terrible it all is and how he would rather Edward have married Lucy over her spreading the misery even farther, like how Lucy dared to get together with Robert and just destroy their family and blah, 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 blah. And he is surprised that Edward hasn't written and he hopes that Edward will write and beg for forgiveness, basically. And then he says, for we all know the tenderness of Mrs. Ferrer's heart and that she wishes for nothing so much as to be on good terms with her children. Yeah, that's really all Mrs. Ferrer's wishes for. Edward at this point stands up for himself. I was so proud of him. He says he's not going to write a letter of condolences. He is not sorry for what he did. And Eleanor's like, well, maybe you can say that you're you're sorry for ever having been engaged to Lucy because that's kind of true. And he's like, yeah, I guess that is true. And Eleanor says maybe that will soften the blow when he reveals that he is now engaged to another person who she disapproves of. He decides that he's going to go do it in person. So he and 
Brandon, leave for Delaford together. I really love this friendship in particular. Uh, this is a bromance for the ages. Yeah. And um, then he's going to go to London from there. And that is the end of that chapter. All right. Chapter 50. Chapter 50, the final countdown. <laughs> Edward is permitted at last to see Mrs. Ferrers after some resistance from her because she doesn't want to appear too amiable. This is This is funny, so I have to read it. Her family had of late been exceedingly fluctuating. For many years of her life, she had two sons, but the crime and annihilation of Edward a few weeks ago had robbed her of one. The similar annihilation of Robert (laughs) had left her for a fortnight without any, and now by the resuscitation of Edward, she had one again. This woman is the worst. Like, that's the thing that's so satisfying. This is what I love about the end of this book is just the scrambling of the Ferrers family. Yes. Like, Fanny is just a fucking wreck. And Mrs. Ferrers has to just, like, slowly pull Edward back in and accept Eleanor at long last. Yes. Yes. So he tells her about Eleanor. And at first she's like, well, Miss Morton would be a much better choice. And he, I'm proud of him. He really played the right strings. He was like, yeah, you're right. She would be, but I'm not going to marry her. Um, Like you're right, but no. And at last Mrs. Ferrers relents and says that she will consent to Edward marrying Eleanor. She even says she's going to give them some money. I wasn't sure if she's giving them more money than initially promised or like just back to his initial inheritance. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, so basically she left him destitute mm-hmm. and she irrevocably placed the living, like the estate, on Robert. That means she can't take it back. Oh. So Robert Ferris is not facing any consequences for his actions monetarily, just his family's mad at him. Edward, on the other hand, Still destitute. So what Mrs. Ferris is doing here is basically giving him a little bump, a little boost. So they still need the living Colonel Brandon gave. But if you remember, the living that Colonel Brandon gave was like you could grow it, but it wasn't much yet. Right. And Eleanor has like a tiny amount of money herself. Mm-hmm. And Edward has a tiny amount of money himself. And now with this boost from Mrs. Ferrers, it becomes pretty much like a middle class lifestyle. Right. And it said in the book that they both were like more than thrilled with this because they don't want to be rich. And it said Mrs. Ferris was the only one surprised at her not giving them more. <laughs> she's like, yeah. I'm going to be stingy. But yeah. And she's like, oh, God, I, he still deserves punishment. But I will give him a little bit because she doesn't want him to be like, I guess, starving on the street now that he's her son again. Right. And you might remember like really early on in this book, there was a conversation between Marianne and Eleanor and Edward where they were talking about what kind of level of wealth they could withstand. And Eleanor and Edward were both like, I don't really need that much. And Marianne was like, me neither. I just want this super wealthy lifestyle. Yes. So basically, Eleanor and Edward are getting what they wish. They're trading in um, more riches that they could have in favor of a life together with like the person they love. And a little less money, but a lot of fulfillment. Yes. So look at Jane Austen taking the economics of dating and Jane Austen and saying, suck it, this is a love match. Yeah. Yeah. Love's more important than money, but like you still need to eat. (laughs) Yes, you still need to eat. Meanwhile, Brandon is making improvements to the parsonage so that Eleanor will be comfortable. And they had planned on waiting till all the improvements were done, but... Eleanor is pretty anxious to get married and she says, let's just get married. She wants to bang. She does want to bang. She wants to bang. There was a word used in this paragraph that I want to say. They were talking about the dilatoriness, dilatoriness, dilatoriness of the workmen who were working on the parsonage. That means 
procrastination. Maybe they're the same guys who work on the New York subway system. Yeah, probably. So they get married and Mrs. Jennings' prediction that she would be able to visit Edward and his wife at the parsonage by Michaelmas came true because now he's married to Eleanor. And she also said her hope of seeing Eleanor happy in marriage at Delaford was also true. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Mrs. Jennings really predicted this whole thing, didn't she? Guys, is Mrs. Jennings the protagonist of the book? I think so. Now she's hoping for the future marriage of Brandon and Marianne. This is when everyone starts shipping Brandon and Marianne. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Everyone comes to visit them, even Mrs. Ferrers, and uh, their brother, John, comes and says to Eleanor that he isn't disappointed, but it would have given him pleasure to call Brandon brother. And while he thinks that Marianne isn't necessarily Brandon's type because he's the least perceptive person in the world, he hopes that Eleanor will invite Marianne over often so that she can spend time with Colonel Brandon. It feels important to say he believes that Colonel Brandon would be a great brother-in-law because of his estate. And his money. True. He doesn't really like Brandon that much as a person. It's just that he's rich. Right. You're right. You're right. Mrs. Ferris, meanwhile, has forgiven Robert because Lucy has weaseled her way into her heart. This part is one of my favorite passages in the book. I had a feeling it was. They want to tell us now how this all came to be. So initially, Robert did go to Lucy to dissuade her from marrying Edward. However... Lucy plays him like a violin. She basically just keeps giving little crumbs of, oh, maybe, but I, I'm not sure. If you have anything else to say about it, you can come back tomorrow. And then she comes in and she's got like her like top on that like pops up her cleavage and she's got little snackies and she's like, oh, oh, you still don't want me to marry Edward? Well, I'll have to think about it. Could you come by tomorrow again? And it keeps going and going. And then suddenly she's got him talking about himself and she's got her boobs pushed up and she's like, wow, so interesting. And suddenly Robert 
even though he professed Edward was a fucking idiot for falling into this, does the exact same thing. Yep, and exactly. faces no consequences. Robert is a weenie. Robert is such a weenie, and he faces no consequences because of his sweet spot position as the favorite and the second child. Yes. Second son, at least. Fuck him. It does say that he is, like, excited to be going behind his mother's back, which I thought was a little out of character for him because he seemed like such a mama's boy throughout the book. Oh, yeah, but he's also just, like, an adventurer. Like, he, he doesn't really think about things, like, for how they will affect other people. He likes the idea of, like, doing something fun and crazy for the heck of it. You didn't yes. get that sense from him in the book? I guess, yeah. But we did talk about him being kind of, like, a frat boy finance bro yeah etc so i can see how he's like oh yeah the thrill of the chase i don't know but yeah like this this whole like oh man that would be fucking sick to talk about later yo <laughs> oh man that was like that was crazy man that was a crazy experience yeah I, I like just like shit i like went and i like married this girl and now like guess the fuck what i am a husband <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then lucy uh goes into mrs Ferrer's life and she's like like, I'm so, you know, yeah, it was terrible of us to go behind your back, but like, oh my God, you're the best and just warms her up and uh, butters her up. And then Lucy somehow becomes Mrs. Ferrer's favorite. <laughs> She's like her favorite daughter. Oh, yes. Yes. Poor She's Fanny. Like, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. If you notice in this book, who is the one member of the Ferris family other than Edward who doesn't forgive? Fanny. Yes. Oh... Mm-hmm. Never forgives. She never forgets. Mm. Mm. It's like it's almost as if it's very subtle. But Fanny has been punished for her crime so much in this book that she's almost learned a fucking lesson. Almost. Almost. Not quite, but almost. So everything works out well for the Ferrers, which is annoying. Basically, Lucy and Mrs. Ferrers become best friends. Edward was never cordially forgiven for having once intended to marry Lucy, and Eleanor, though superior to her in fortune and birth, was spoken of as an intruder. She was in everything considered and always openly acknowledged to be a favorite child, meaning Lucy was the favorite child. Uh, They settle down in town. They get a lot of assistance from Mrs. Ferrers. They're on the best terms imaginable with the Dashwoods, and setting aside the jealousies and ill will continually subsisting between Fanny and Lucy, in which their husbands, of course, took a part, as well as the frequent domestic disagreements between Robert and Lucy themselves, nothing could exceed the harmony in which they all live together. Yes. So I guess everything doesn't totally work out. Yeah, clearly Fanny still has issues, and I love that. And also Robert and Lucy aren't super happy. Yes, of course they're not. I mean, they're both terrible people. Yes, so like, how could they be happy? Of course not. So Eleanor's mother and sisters spend a lot of time at Delaford, and Marianne and Brandon do end up spending some time together. And everyone is shipping them. So what could she do, it says. I wanted to read. I have feelings mm-hmm. about this whole passage. Okay, yeah. Um, so the way it's described, and I'm sure I'll get to this more in the study questions, uh, so I'll just read the first part for now, and then I'll come back to it later. Um, it says, with such a confederacy against her, meaning everyone's shipping her and him with a knowledge so intimate of his goodness with a conviction of his fond attachment to herself which at last though long after it was observable to everybody else burst on her what could she do what could she do but get married to him so they get married and that's good they're happy it's been (laughs) i guess it's been some time two years it's been two years so colonel brandon is so so happy and marianne is satisfied at first because she definitely likes him as a friend a lot and it says quote marianne could never love by halves and her whole heart became in time as much devoted to her husband as it had once been to willoughby yes which is great 
And I am happy that she has learned to love him. I still... Don't see it? Well, here, I'll just... The next part that I wanted to read... Go for it. ...was right after What Could She Do? There's a whole paragraph, and I'll just read it. Marianne Dashwood was born to an extraordinary fate. She was born to discover the falsehood of her own opinions and to counteract by her conduct her most favorite maxims. She was born to overcome an affection formed so late in life at at 17, lol, and with no sentiment superior to strong esteem and lively friendship voluntarily to give her hand to another. And that other, a man who had suffered no less than herself under the event of a former attachment, whom two years before she had considered too old to be married and who still sought the constitutional safeguard of a flannel waistcoat. The fact of the matter is that when Marianne marries him, she is not in love with him. And I know that that the whole of Jane Austen essentially is like, do we marry for money or do we marry for love? Do we marry for comfort or do we marry for love? And I'm not saying that what Marianne thought before was correct because that was an extreme. Like, obviously, she was right to not marry Willoughby. But Brandon loves her so passionately. Like, he has been obsessed with her since day one, which, like, again, like, a little bit weird. I don't fully see why because he doesn't know her very well, but fine. Like, but he loves her so much. And this is, like, everything to him. And she's just like, okay you're here. And like, yes, she does grow to love him. And that's great. It's not the best, though. I read it quite differently than you. Um, I mean, so for one thing, that's how a lot of people have read it for years. Yeah, that this book is just serving as a lesson for Marianne. It's a cautionary tale about getting too up in your own feelings and then walking off and uh, finding a sensible older gentleman who's you're you're okay with and like settling down for life. And that's really what makes happiness. You've read only one Jane Austen book, but do you really think that's how Jane Austen feels about the whole situation? No. I think that Jane Austen is a big fan of marrying for love, which is why I'm like surprised. Well, for one thing, I think what's powerful about this book in a lot of ways is that I don't necessarily read this happening in the in the book itself. Mm-hmm. This is something that happens kind of after the fact. Yes. This yes. is kind of like an epilogue note at the end. I see at the end of the book, Marianne is kind of like in her own world, getting to know herself. Yes. Spending time and uh, growing up a little bit. Yes, which I really liked for her. And I don't see it as black and white as you do about her being indifferent to him and then learning to love him because he's what's there. I see two years transpire where she's, quote from Jane Austen, there more than she is at her own home. And in that time, it is not as though it is the same Colonel Brandon pining and Marion ignoring him situation. That's not how it's going. No, they're becoming friends. They're becoming very close to each other and close friends. And when I read this passage, I don't read that she was indifferent to him or like forced into the match. I read that something started to grow that she saw as potential. She's the conviction of his character, the knowledge of him as a friend, and she is surprised by it. And she sees last of all that he's in love with her and she takes him up on it. And from that finds more happiness and growth in her relationship than imaginable. We talked about this really early on in the series about how love is a journey, not a destination. 
And what she does is she chooses to act upon that compatible match and finds a love as satisfying and beautiful as the one she thought she had with Willoughby. Wow, Molly's crying, guys. (laughs) That was unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I just, yeah, like, it was... Wow. Um... I see where you're coming from. (laughs) Wow. I really just shifted you a little. You did just shift me a little because I guess I was thinking in Jane Austen's words, what could she do? I guess I was reading it as what could she do but give in to the pressure? What could she do but settle? Now, I never thought that she was settling for Colonel Brandon because he is a catch. He is a catch and a half. And a half. But he, you know, he loved her so much more than she loved him. And I think it's what I was talking about when I was really hardcore shipping him and Eleanor was the what if we were just friends, but we decided to get married because we love each other as people. And so now I see that that is what Marianne did. Yeah. And here's here's the here's the part that I get so excited about. You see that as the natural path for Eleanor and you see the path of forbidden but uncontrollable soulmate love for Marianne. And it's the other way around. And they swap. I love that. They swap their paths of love and what they think love is and what is desired by each girl. And they realize that the other one was kind of right. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, I just blew your mind, right? I love this book. (laughs) I know, right? Wow. And you know, we'll have listeners who will disagree. I read this in a very specific manner, but that is how I read what Jane Austen was trying to say and do here. Because... Jane Austen is not a fan of leaving her heroines in destitute states. No. Um, And she's not a fan of creating like a binary of money match or a love match. She, She gives you all this like depth and complexity to these relationships. And it's very simplistic to think, oh, yeah, Marianne learned her lesson and now she marries this stuffy old guy because that's not who Colonel Brandon is. No, he's hot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's not who Marianne is. And certainly you can see that partially through their interactions with Eleanor and the fact that Eleanor exists in the book offering a foil to Marianne and the fact that Marianne exists in the book offering a foil to Eleanor. That's why the book is about both of them. It's about Eleanor and Marianne. It's about sense and sensibility. And I predicted at the beginning that they were going to have to take a little of the other person's sense. Like one of them was going to have to take some sense and the other one was going to have to learn some sensibilities. And it's exactly what you just said. They swapped. They swapped paths. Yes. Oh. Oh. That's how I feel about the end of this book. Okay. Uh, I feel a lot better about it now that we've discussed. Yes. Speaking of, though, people ending up in not the best situation, Willoughby over in his corner is sad and his punishment for all this. I had to ask about this. Um, his pun- It says that his punishment was complete when his wife forgives him. They stay together, right? Yes. Okay, because I get- wasn't sure for a minute. Maybe they she left him, but she forgives him. And then he's like, oh, shit, I'm with a woman of good character, so... It's even worse that I was like in love with Marianne the whole time because I have a better option all in all over here and I'm just a bad person. Oh, yeah. No, Willoughby, in case you can't tell, what kind of is interesting about Willoughby is the amount that he feels how much of a bad person he is. Yeah. And then, but that gets still fine. Well, I mean, he's fine. But he, he in terms of his circumstances, he he ends the book wealthy, um, married to a good woman and probably cheating on her from the way they speak in this book. Yes, Absolutely. Um, But she forgives him. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, clearly Willoughby has not become a better person. But Willoughby's punishment is not 
material in that way. Willoughby's punishment is to spend the rest of his life tortured over the loss of Marianne and the knowledge that Marianne married Colonel Brandon. Yes, and Marianne married Colonel Brandon, which, like, in a way, makes them forever connected because her kind of daughter, stepdaughter, has a baby who is belonging to our good friend, Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, the, not our stepdaughter necessarily. His ward, who he is close to. Yeah, I think about his daughter. It's a fair. It's a fair reading. Yeah. His daughter, but not by blood. Um, his adopted daughter. It does say that Willoughby does not die of a broken heart. Instead, he raises dogs and horses and has enough domestic felicity to be fine. And I like to imagine him as an old cat lady, just with his animals. Yep. And the way he builds her up, my God. For Marianne, however, in spite of his incivility and surviving her loss, he always retained that decided regard which interested him in everything that befell her and made her his secret standard of perfection in a woman. And many a rising beauty would be slighted by him in after days as bearing no comparison with Mrs. Brandon. I loved that. That is his punishment. That is his punishment. And also like why we should never hold anyone to a gold standard because the way that he thinks of women is creepy and gross oh super creepy and gross and he doesn't learn and that's why he'll never be with marianne and he'll never be happy and she is happy that's yes. how this book ends yes. marianne is happy marianne is happy yeah meanwhile mrs dashwood stays at the cottage and now mrs jennings and sir john have margaret to turn their attention to because she is now of the dancing age and the marriageable age so they, they get to match make with her and everyone lives happily ever after, especially our girls, Eleanor and Marianne. May I read the last paragraph of Please this do. book? Please do. Between Barton and Delaford, there was that constant communication which strong family affection would naturally dictate. And among the merits and happiness of Eleanor and Marianne, let it not be ranked as the least considerable that, though sisters and living within almost sight of each other, they could live without disagreement between themselves or producing coolness between their husbands. And they all lived happily ever after. That's the end of the book. Fireworks. Record scratch. Wait, no record scratch. No record scratch. <laughs> no, no, don't don't give us a record scratch. Give us fireworks. Give us dancing music. Yeah, we finished this book. And that brings us to my last study questions. The last study questions of the novel. Oh, we have a few. We have a few. We actually fully addressed one of them. That's great. That's fine. But first, let's talk about Lucy. Is she a villain or is she kind of an anti-hero? What do we mean by anti-hero before I answer? I kind of respect Lucy. Yes. For how good she is at what she does. Yes. Like we said, I do think that she is a political mastermind. She was always out for her own success and she was going to do whatever was necessary from the get-go. So like, she was going to marry Edward. Like we said, if he had not been disowned, she would be married to Edward. But the fact that a wrench got thrown on those plans, one, she's going to toss her sister out the window. Two, she's going to marry the next best thing. And so she really landed on top in this situation. Not easily, though. Honestly, like, here's the thing about Lucy Steele is we talked about this last episode a little bit. She is from nothing. And she made herself into an heiress. She gave herself a life that many women of higher stature than her could not hope for. That is impressive. And it takes a cold, calculated ruthlessness and a genius on her part. She had the capacity to seduce Eric 
<laughs> You've done that twice now in this. I, I I don't know how that happened. She had the capacity to seduce Edward based on like his childhood boredom and angst. And she had the capacity to subdue Eleanor as a threat entirely. Entirely. As she kept her claws into Edward because she wanted his money. And then when he loses his money, she ends up seducing his brother who had massive disdain for her and the brother that she just helped get disowned. It's like people meet her and their brains just... Well, what happens is that she happens to be uncannily good at knowing how to control the other people around her. Even Eleanor. Like, Eleanor understood very quickly about her that she was a flatterer and a social climber, but she still read Eleanor like a book and was able to keep Eleanor down the entire book. And she ends up in a situation where not only was she able to figure out how to play everyone to her advantage and end up on top and not give a shit, she still ends up on top with the people she shat on the most. That's true. So to your question, like, is she a villain or an anti-hero? Yes, she did good. She did all of that. But I feel like she just doesn't care about anyone. So I think, I mean, she's a good villain. She is a delicious villain. Sense and Sensibility is some of the best villains in Austin. Fanny Dashwood, who I I do think that Fanny... No, Fanny's totally a villain, even if she's learned anything. She's a villain. I think the difference between her and and Lucy Steele is that Fanny is just mean, but, like, she had ulterior motives, but she wasn't gonna, like, destroy someone's life. Like, she did destroy people's lives? Okay. It's hard, though, because I feel like she wasn't as calculated. See, the thing about Fanny Dashwood is it's a much lower stakes game for her. Right. Because... She's already rich. She's already rich. Lucy is playing for the win because if she loses, she's destitute. And you're right. She did really come out on top with the people that who she destroyed. Yeah. And they still somehow like her. That's a good question, though. Of the three villains, I would characterize um, Fanny Dashwood, John, John Willoughby, and Lucy Steele. Who was your favorite of the three? Ooh, my favorite or my least favorite? Ooh. Give me favorite in terms of the most compelling. Okay. Favorite most compelling would have to be Lucy Steele because she's got the most complex... Like, we don't know what she's doing. She's operating completely undercover. She is a good villain. See, I I think it's a tough handoff. She might be my favorite villain. It might be Willoughby. Well, for Willoughby, I just, he's just a douchebag, but he's a, oh, but he's in love. Mm, that's hard. That's why it's so hard, because Lucy is deliciously unemotional, heinous, and like ruthless just just like leaving her sister for dead she's selfish oh unquestionably but so is he the difference is that lucy doesn't give a shit about anyone but herself anyone and she will do whatever it takes to get to the top and she's playing a very high stakes game because if she doesn't she dies because she's super poor right willoughby on the other hand is a selfish piece of shit but willoughby has known love so Willoughby is tortured and Willoughby has these sensations of immense uh, regret and pain that Lucy will never know because Lucy doesn't give a shit. Right. But, you know, we've talked about Willoughby being a selfish lover. And in my notes, I, 
Yes. <laughs> uh, he is a pillow princess. So in my notes, I had written that, like, I don't think that he actually, I almost wrote he doesn't have the capacity to care about anyone, but, or I almost wrote he doesn't have the capacity to love, but he does have the capacity to love, but because he's a selfish lover, I don't actually think that he cares about the people that he loves. He loves Marianne as an idea. He, long after they've broken up, he holds her on this pedestal. I don't think he's known real, true love. I think he's known an infatuation with this person and it's a kind of love, but he doesn't care ultimately what happens to her except outside of how it relates to him. Here's a question. Do you think you can be a bad person and feel real love? Yes. I think Willoughby is a bad person who feels real love for Marianne. And I think that his incapacity in terms of his character bastardizes that love right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I make this point all the time, which is like, don't underestimate how powerful love can be, even when you're a bad person. Again, one day we will read Wuthering Heights and you will see what I mean when I say it's my favorite book. But I think John Willoughby is a really great encapsulation of how true love when you are not up to the task of it is a bitter and fangled, thorny, toxic thing that kind of ruins his life, even though his life is fine. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think Willoughby's interesting. I, I, I think it's actually a really tough toss up. And I think at the end of this book, when this goes up, we should do a poll for our listeners and ask them who they think is the better villain, Lucy Steele or John Willoughby. And here's the thing. Fanny Dashwood, not even in the equation because she's bad, but she's just kind of shitty. She's just a bad person, but like ultimately she gets trampled on enough by her own like bad morals that she's she's punished. Yeah, we don't need to talk about her. All right. So that brings me to my next question. And it's quite relevant. Um, What do you make of the end of the fairies and how Lucy plays into that? Well, it makes sense because they are all they talked about. um, Edward was hypothesizing about how this came to be. And he says that. The vanity of one was so played on by the flattery of the other that whatever. His whole family is vain. And Lucy can see that and she plays right into it and she makes them all forgive her except for Fanny Dashwood and obviously Edward Ferrers. But like, yeah. And I mean, with Fanny, it's probably like an outward forgiveness, but an inward. Yeah, like Fanny's there and she doesn't super care, but she's like, whatever. But Mrs. Ferrers is the big one. She's always been set in her ways and she's always had a favorite in Robert. And the fact that he did exactly the same thing as Edward and married Lucy Steele and still gets forgiven, it says, and from thence returning to town, procured the forgiveness of Mrs. Ferrers by the simple expedient of asking it, which at Lucy's instigation was adopted. The forgiveness at first, indeed, as was reasonable, comprehended only Robert and Lucy, who had owed his mother no duty and therefore could have transgressed none, still remained some weeks longer unpardoned. But perseverance and humility of conduct and messages, in self-condemnation for Robert's offense, and gratitude for the unkindness she was treated with, procured her in time the haughty notice which overcame her by its graciousness, and led soon afterwards by rapid degrees to the highest state of affection and influence. Basically, Lucy shows up and she's like, I know this was terrible. Uh, I think I'm so sorry. And, um, you know, yeah, I totally deserve you being so angry with me. I totally deserve it. And so then Mrs. Ferris notices her and then she's like, oh, my gosh, you're being so nice to me. And then Mrs. Ferris is like, "Ah, okay." So here's a question. What's Austin saying with this, this whole situation? That 
negative Nancys will gather together. I love that. Negative Nancys will gather together. Um, Lest we not forget, even though this is a romantic book and a book about sisters and a seaside tale, Austin is also a an incredibly astute class critic. It's about rich people. It's about class, like the, the, the structures of class in England and how fabricated they are because the people at the top are so vain mm-hmm. and so up on themselves that someone who does not belong can get in there and make the class system fall all the way away by just working on the egos of the rich people. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes, uh, we've talked about class a lot throughout this book, and um, we've talked about how we were worried that Jane Austen might be like making the poor person the villain. But I, I love that that the class. Yeah, I love that she comes in there and just topples their expectations and makes them forget that she's poor. And she's like, "Listen, this is all fake. It's all appearances." I love that. I also. Will once again say Jane Austen, champion of the working class. <laughs> Edward and Eleanor are the happiest, and they are the ones with just enough money to satisfy their needs. Yes, and it grows with time because Edward, you know, likes being a priest. Yes, um, but yeah, I think that's correct. And like I see Lucy in this book, she is a bad person. She is a villain, and you could read that as a very classist instinct on Austen's part. And it's not the most sensitive characterization of a working class girl because she did the same thing with Wickham, which yeah. is something we've talked about before. Exactly, but I also think at the same time, Lucy's serving as a mirror to the upper class people around her, and Eleanor is observing her transcend class just because the 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 arrogance of being at the top and the arrogance of your surety in the class system is a foil to a very astute member of the lower classes. Mm. And she shows just how stupid these people are Mm -hmm. and just how vain they are Mm -hmm. and just how greedy they are in her presence and her capacity to have a sense of how vain and stupid and greedy they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yes. So it it is very fascinating. Lucy Steele... She is a terrible person and reading her slowly through this book could be excruciating because she is so awful, but she is so interesting and such a cool piece of Austen's literary canon. I will leave it there. Um, We talked about Marianne's ending. Do you have anything you want to add as you've heard, you've given your sense of it and I've given my sense of it and I've made you cry? (laughs) Yeah, um... I mean, for me, this was what I was waiting on. I was really, for me, I, I understood that Edward and Eleanor were going to be happy once they could put everything else aside. I knew that that was going to happen. I was curious as to how, and I loved the way that it came to be. Meanwhile, I had no idea how this was going to pan out with Brandon and Marianne. I think I went into it thinking I was going to be unsatisfied with the ending because I knew we were running out of time. And mostly, I just believe that Colonel Brandon deserves an explosive love like I want him so badly to have this thing because he's such a passionate man but also he's a sweet kind quiet man too and I think that I just want I wanted the best for him and I don't know what I thought that that was um I think that I thought it was you know Eleanor I thought it was Eleanor (laughs) And then I thought, you know, 
at one point I was thinking they are such good friends. Like in this time period, maybe that's enough to just settle down and start a family and just be happy and be best friends. Cause they do say like, marry your best friend sometimes, unless it's like genuinely just your best friend and then don't, don't marry them, but like be best friends with the person that you're marrying. So I thought that that's what I wanted for him, but I thought it was going to be Ah, like the more I say it, the more that what happened is what I thought I wanted for him. Um, So I'm I'm torn. But I think that I wanted Marianne to love him as much as he loved her for it to be like an even playing field, like equally they love each other this much. It didn't seem to me reading it that that was the case. But you pointed out that it two years have gone by. She's 19 by the time that they get married and he's 38. The age difference is like a little weird, but I'm not upset about the age difference. I was upset about the love match. And I think going back to what we said, which is Marianne has become very close to him and isn't settling necessarily, but has like learned to love him as a person. I'm seeing the montage scene in my head. Uh, And I know that you said that a lot of your opinions on this are colored by the movie. So I I definitely am excited to see it played out. But like I am picturing in my head a montage of years passing and them going for walks together and sort of falling in love. And she like might not think of it as love because she's used to exciting fireworks, love, all of a sudden like sparks fly when your fingers touch the popcorn bowl, etc., but it's a more quiet, slow burn. And eventually is just as much of a firecracker. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I am happy with the ending now that we've talked about it. I feel a lot less, um, like angry about it. I, I, I am happy for Colonel Brandon and I am, I do really love the juxtaposition of like how Eleanor's story panned out versus how Marianne's story panned out. Um, yeah, I'm satisfied. Yes. And I, I mean, ultimately this story if I had any critique of this story in terms of the way Jane Austen writes it, it's that she does a lot of showing and a lot less telling when it comes to the formation of the bond between Edward and Eleanor and the formation of the bond between Marianne and Brandon. And she tells us those things happen, but she doesn't do as much of the showing of it happening. And I think that that is a valid critique of this book. That being said, I still think the story stands on its own and gorgeously. Well, yes, something I was going to say and then wanted to retract it immediately so I didn't say it, but I'll say it now, is that I was wishing that instead of it all being crammed onto the last two pages between Marianne and Brandon, it had panned out more and that we had gotten to see it. But it's true if we take the end of the chapter before this and we see Marianne ends the book working on herself And then gets a little epilogue of like after the story is over, she and Brandon do fall in love and do get married. It actually stands with what we've said this book is about the whole time, which is Eleanor and Marianne. Which brings us to our next question. What makes this ending so happy? This ending is so happy because everyone ends up happy. And I mean, Eleanor and Marianne are living out their dreams, living near each other, but having their own separate lives and getting to visit each other every day. And they've both learned from each other and they've both grown and years have passed and they've um, gained a little bit more sense and sensibility. Respectively. Respectively. It's in the title. It's in the title. (laughs) And uh, I think that what makes it so happy, aside from 
the fair well the fairs the fairs are gonna fairs they're gonna be the same they're they didn't grow they've been you know their lives have been shifted but they didn't grow um the people who we are rooting for the people who we care about and who care about each other like ended up with the good life they did and I think I can't stress enough the fact that the last line of this book is about the fact that these two sisters get to live together happily for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That to me is the happy ending Jane Aston is putting out into the ether. And I think that's kind of why she half-asses the ending with the romance a little bit, because it's just so clear from the story that what's so wonderful here is that these girls have found their men and their family together and that they have a deeper understanding of the other one and have gone through so much together. And in the end, they just get to see themselves and each other happy together for the rest of their lives. And it's especially happy because this book started with their lives and their family being completely uprooted. Like they were living happily. Their dad died. And instead of getting to stay at their house, they got kicked out by their own brother and his stupid wife. And they have to uproot their whole lives their family is the most important thing to them and that's that's always been the case and Marianne when she's uh jilted by Willoughby is like I'm gonna just family first from now on like it's only you guys I don't care about men like they are a tight-knit group I would say even tighter than the Bennett's like they are they love each other unconditionally and they're like so happy when Margaret comes back and like it's like a whole thing and the fact that they all get to just be within easy distance of each other and everyone's happy and everyone's helping each other out like that's happy that's a happy ending yeah I am just gonna say we're gonna end the book talking about themes you pulled from it things insights you have reflections on the book I added I put down a few themes um I said love what heartbreak is choice um inheritance and the pressures on men in this society. Do you have any reflections, things that we haven't talked about in this podcast that like really jump into your brain? Gosh, themes of this book. Um, I mean, love is a huge one. Sisterhood is a huge one. Friendship. As much as I talked about rooting for Eleanor and Brandon for the whole time, like platonic friendship. We stand. It's ahead of their, it's ahead of its time. It is ahead of its time because so much of Austin so far that we've read uh, as in the one book was just about love friendships um, except for Lizzie and Fitzwilliam Colonel Fitzwilliam (laughs) Um, I was also going to say Lizzie and Bingley seemed to have a romance going on there that was cute but it was not as much in the book it was just what I wanted to be (laughs) right like it wasn't featured and genuinely discussed by Austin and so I think that that this platonic friendship thing that is happening between men and women is really important and is a huge theme and it it goes in that plays into like different kinds of love and like what are the different kinds of love friendship love romance love lust love obsession love like all of these different kinds of love are huge themes class structure motherhood Mm. got lots of mothers oh and um I think morals are a big theme in this yes because we have some characters that really really take a hit on morals and I think also duty and uh, loyalty are huge themes. You look at the Edward versus Willoughby path when it comes to women from their past who were beneath them. Mm-hmm. And you you really see how these things uh, form the story for these girls. A- 
anyway, I'm, I've been thrilled to share this book with you. It has been such a joy. I have been fangirling the entire time I've pulled stuff out of this book that I haven't gotten out of it before. I love this book. I love being an Eleanor. I love you being a Marianne. And a Brandon. And a Brandon. Uh, so all I really have to say is funniest quote. I think my first one is the only one I didn't read out loud because I there was a few that were funny to me that I read out loud. So I'll just read. It's in the first paragraph. So Edward was free, blah, blah, blah. And to what purpose that freedom would be employed was easily predetermined by all. For after experiencing the blessings of one imprudent engagement contracted without his mother's consent, as he had already done for more than four years, nothing less could be expected of him in the failure of that than the immediate contraction of another. Fantastic choice. Thank you. Questions. Not moving forward in the book, but just generally, and I guess for the movies. Oh, man. Questions for the movies. I... I'm so excited to find out who plays everyone. Like, I know my main people, but I'm really excited to see that. I think I might have seen a spoiler and tried to immediately forget it. Um, I don't know who this person plays, but I did find out another person who is in it. So I'm not going to say anything. But I am curious about particularly the 1995 movie that we are covering next is how are they going to get this entire story in there? who's going to have to go because based on the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, like some characters are going to have to get cut. I'll say this as we walk in. It's a two, two and a half hour movie. And you know, in any sort of thing like that, there's going to be like changes around the periphery of the story. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if I will be upset about any of those. Like if anything that is near and dear to my heart is going to get cut, I'll whomst. be <laughs> whomst. I don't know. Um, so that's what I'm most curious about. And I'm just really excited to get into this next chapter, so to speak, of the pod. Who wins the book? Oh, man. Overall, it's got to be Eleanor and Marianne. I agree. I think it goes to both girls. Yeah. They both had growth in different ways. And I think they both came out the absolute top of what their story could have come out. I agree. Listeners, that concludes this reading of Sense and Sensibility. If you tune in next time, we're going to be covering the 1995 movie version of this starring Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant, and Kate Winslet. (laughs) You should definitely watch the whole thing. We obviously will not cover the whole movie in one episode. Quick little side note as well. We've been getting a lot of questions about whether or not we're covering the 2008 miniseries. We will absolutely be covering that. That will come right after the 1995. I just wanted to put that out there so we can put all your minds at ease. But first, 1995. You will see we have some really stellar guests lined up for this. Um, We're so excited to share that with you. But until next time, stay proper. And find yourself a husband. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.